Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man behind it all, Mr. Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. But we do not just want to see you on Snapchat and Twitter. We'd love to meet in person and that can happen at Sasta Annual 2018. But not only can the meeting happen, but we can also have mojitos together and get you 10% off your ticket price. All you have to do is head to drinkswithharry.com. I know I'm still in shock they gave me my own domain name to purchase your ticket or enter the code drinkswithharry when you buy your ticket. Really would be fantastic to meet and have mojitos. But to the show today, and although no mojitos, an incredible guest in store, and I'm thrilled to welcome Chris Karen, CEO at Turn It In, the company revolutionising the experience of writing to learn, with backing from the likes of IVP, Norwest Venture Partners, and GIC. Chris has scaled the company to serve over 25 million students and 2 million teachers across 15,000 institutions. And prior to joining Turn It In in 2009, Chris spent four years with Microsoft as a general manager, and before that, three years at Business Objects as a VP of Product Marketing. I do also want to give a big hand to Dave Kellogg at Host Analytics for the intro to Chris today, without which this episode would not have happened. But before we dive into the show today, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, WebConnects, the maker of powerful software for event management and fundraising, having processed over a billion dollars for their customers and reaching over a million people every month. WebConnects are nearly white label, so thousands of organizations customize them to be like their own in-house solution. And they're all about flexibility and customization at a reasonable cost. And you can learn more at webconnects.com. And to learn how you can really grow your revenue with integrated payments, like WebConnects did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this incredible smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, check that out at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But that's quite enough from me. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Chris Karen, CEO at Turn It In. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Chris, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Dave Kellogg for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Absolutely happy to be here, Harry. I'd love though to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to make your way into what I call the wonderful world of SaaS. Yeah, so I studied engineering way back when in college, and despite having an interest in mechanical and industrial engineering, found myself in software somewhat accidentally via a career step into consulting. Really enjoyed the space, the idea of being able to envision a capability and have it appear very rapidly through even the rudimentary state of software 25 years ago. And through my career, we're in a set of different software businesses, a startup after business school to Microsoft, very large company, more and more saw the transition towards a cloud-based world for applications, both to improve access, improve configurability. And about four years into Microsoft, decided I wanted to do something smaller and do something that was pure SaaS. At the time at Microsoft, I was working in the business applications division, where we had both on-premise business applications and SaaS-based. And was lucky enough to 
get the job to run Turn It In about eight and a half years ago. It's been a, a great ride. Can I ask you an interesting question? Uh, SaaS is often a, a kind of wildly thrown about name and term. How do you define pure SaaS? I've defined pure SaaS as an application that lives in a cloud, whether it's a private cloud, hybrid, or public, that is multi-tenant, meaning you build something once and either the same flavor of application is available to all your customers, consumers, or businesses, or via configuration that scales across a single instance of an application can deliver customized functionality to various customers' constituencies. So that, I guess, I'd call pure SaaS. I've seen companies that have moved from on-premise to SaaS but not gotten to full multi-tenant, and I think there's a huge penalty you pay as a company and as a customer of that company if it's not built from the ground up to be a multi-tenant application. And before we talk about scaling those pure SaaS organizations, I do quickly want to dive on, on some of your experience with the likes of business objects and Microsoft. I'd love to hear, what were the big learnings and takeaways from watching them really ramp up into hypergrowth and scale with the team? What were those takeaways for you? With business objects, it was a, a great experience. I, I got a flavor for the impact that marketing done right can really have on a company, both in terms of enabling your channel, your sales organization, your partners to do the best possible work in winning business and in establishing deeper relationships with customers. So that was probably a great experience in seeing the power of great product marketing to drive both go-to-market as well as making sure the product roadmap that engineering goes and builds maps to where customer trends are heading and where the competition is, is hopefully not heading. So that was probably the biggest learning for me at, at Business Object. It was great being in the world of analytics in the earlier days of it. Got exposure to both Dave Kellogg, who was a phenomenal mentor in marketing, Bernard Leotode, who was a founder and CEO. That sort of was the epiphany moment for me. So seeing Bernard operate as a CEO and having no idea if I could do it, for sure not as well as he did it, but even well enough to be successful in my own venture, that was the moment I decided I really wanted to give it a shot at some point in my career. At Microsoft, it was really around the value of leveraging all the platform assets the company has to be able to innovate new ideas, new applications very quickly. The Microsoft, at the time, it was more of an on-premise stack, whether it was desktop or, or server-based, but the power of the platform and all the developer expertise there really was a great environment to build applications in the ground up very rapidly and also to hit very high scale in the market, just given the large, large user base of, of Windows and Windows Server customers at the time. Speaking of kind of say, scaling those SaaS orgs and SaaS products, uh, we've spoken before about leadership team upgrade. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the mindset to which you approach this with and then the process to which you, you really analyze leadership team upgrade. Yeah, so I went through, I guess, two leadership team builds at Turnitin. One when I arrived, and that was more around transitioning founders out who were ready to make a move into a different career stage and bringing in new talent. And then when we recapitalized and sold from Warburg Pincus three and a half years ago to Inside Venture Partners, we had another opportunity to, to do a management team upgrade because of a combination of people who wanted to retire, as well as jobs that had just outgrown the people we had on staff. I'd say as a CEO, it's probably the most important thing I can do to a company in terms of impacting future success is hiring the right people into the leadership team. And, and everything from there really is more automatic if you get the right people in the jobs in terms of culture, making the right kind of hires below the executive staff, thinking through and developing the right strategy, getting the right processes in place to execute quickly. If you get the team right, uh, everything else happens fairly automatically, I almost want to say. So it's super critical. My learnings have been through doing that, I guess, in the first phase of leadership team upgrade to make sure you hire people that have at least three or four years of runway in terms of ability to grow up into bigger jobs. We were going through at that time, 30% growth year over year. So any particular job, whether it's engineering, sales, marketing, it got twice as big in three years time. So hiring people that could do a job twice as big as they were moving into day one was super important. And I also was a little bit tired of egos and politics. So I wanted to create a culture at the leadership level that was ego-free, meaning people were there for the company's best result, not their own best 
best result or team's result, not empire builders, not people anxious to take credit, but really just there for the company's success. That was critical to the culture I wanted to build leadership team on down. So that was a big learning then. I guess the other thing I'd say is I did it carefully and brought in new executives one at a time versus doing a mass uh, reboot of three or four positions at once. I felt like that would leave too much unmanaged in the company. And I'm glad in retrospect, I did the person by person upgrade. In terms of the new team rebuild under Insight, a lot of the same learnings that I did my best to follow. And I think we had a ton of success in bringing in a great new leadership team. The thing I focused more on the second time around is hiring for a really strong team dynamic. I think under the Warburg leadership team, great team of people, but less of a gelling of, of the group than I have now. And, and it really benefits the company when you have a team that can really bang heads together on difficult questions, have hard debates, but in the end, get to an agreement and move on and have me not nearly as involved as I needed to be in the previous life in having to break ties or unravel decisions that got stuck. So those are some of the learnings I've had. I guess the last thing I'd say with the new team was I tried to hire less pure specialists in terms of a sales professional or a CTO and hire more generalists into jobs. And that also, I think, really benefits team dynamic and the ability of a set of leaders to really keep scaling up the company and see the big picture all the way through the growth process. So do you not, I guess, do you not need specialists in the later stages of the firm when really it is a very segmented process? So. Yeah, you, you definitely do. Like a great example is our CTO. He is a hardcore technologist, computer science degrees, undergraduate and graduate, but went off and got an MBA at, at Wharton. So has a great business mind as well. So he, he's sort of the ideal of great position player as CTO, but understands business, understands sales, understands you know the, the merits or problems with it with an acquisition that would be under, under debate or, or analysis. So you want to get great skills for the position you're hiring to your point. But I found if you can get that plus people that have broader experiences, you get a much better dynamic in terms of leadership team. How do you, I'm, I'm really intrigued in terms of when there is roles free on the management team, how do you manage the internal culture when there are people internally who are kind of pushing the barriers, almost wanting and expecting that management position, but then you're hiring externally as well? How do you manage that kind of internal culture problem that could happen when bringing someone new in when someone feels that they maybe should have it? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very difficult situation to manage through when, when the answer, at least for me, is to bring someone in from the outside with, with more experience in the bench that's internal. You always, if, if possible, want to be able to groom leadership up inside the company. So when you need to make an upgrade or place a new leader who's left, you have a great bench inside. And in many cases, that, that is the case. In situations where it's not the case, I found the best way to do it is to have people that think they have a shot at the job to meet outside candidates and see the experiences and the skill sets and the accomplishments of people that are available to come and, and join the, uh, the company. And, and once they get a, a sense for how much more experience other people have and how that makes them much more able to step into the job and be successful. That helps a lot, but it's it's very tricky. And I've experienced that a number of times and turn it in, particularly in engineering. And it's pretty time intensive. You want to treat the people that want to step up as carefully as possible and as honestly as possible. I've also found investing in their development. So it may be that, hey, a director of engineering is not ready to be VP, but they have a lot of great potential. So giving them consideration for the job, having them very involved in the selection process, and then investing in them through mentoring, through training, through coaching to show you want them to be that next VP when the, when this chair opens up in the future also helps with the retention. You said also about the three to four years of runway so they can scale into that position. I'm intrigued though, how do you hire the people that are ready for that position now into a smaller firm where maybe they feel they ought to be in a bigger firm, if you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So part is painting the picture for what the job becomes so they understand that even though I'm taking a step back in organizational size or revenues under management, it rapidly gets back to a, a scale they're used to or scale they feel like they can operate at. That's part of it. Part of it is just people who are ready to make a move back to a smaller organization they can build from the ground up in the way they want. So it's people who 
want to take a step back in, in job scope, but then want to accelerate the organizational growth back to where, where they were. And then part of it's economics, honestly. One of the great things about being private equity held, you can uh, give someone a great economic story over time through partial ownership in the company that maybe can't be mirrored in a large public company. And, and that also lets you draw really high talent people into smaller jobs. So those are some of the things that I've, I've used in the past. You mentioned the private equity ownership there. I'm really intrigued just from a completely uneducated perspective, being so used to VC. How does it differ being PE to VC owned? Yeah, so I, I've lived through venture firm once, you know, great backers, Sequoia and Excel. And I'd say the general difference is obviously the stage of company is quite different and the expected outcome variability is, is, is wildly different. So in venture capital, you know, you say a great venture firm should only invest in companies where each individual check they write could make the fund, the IRR, the fund that they expect overall, meaning they expect kind of a low batting average, but the, the ones that hit are phenomenal successes. In private equity, companies are farther along in growth. In most cases, they're profitable or nearing profitability. So rather than having eight failed investments and two home runs in the venture portfolio and private equity, the general expectation, you have a couple firms that go sideways, but if you write 10 checks, majority result in you know two to four times your money back when it's all said and done. So there's more predictability of valuation increase by company in private equity, but you don't expect the outsized returns you get in venture. I think the overall fund return percentage-wise is fairly similar, but profile is just different. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hiring an executive in to turn it in, it's a much more high probability of a company increasing in value and therefore the equity that executive gets being being worth something in the end. No, it makes it makes complete sense. Going back to the scaling though, we, we might have slightly jumped the gun almost in scaling the team because obviously you can't scale the team without the users, uh, the revenue or the funding as we just discussed. And you've spoken to me before about a growth strategy via product-focused M&A. Talk to me, what does this really mean and how does that translate in reality to operations? When I joined the company eight and a half years ago, we were focused primarily on helping universities in the U.S. police for plagiarism for students that would cut corners and turn in work that wasn't theirs. And it was good business, very strong product. But we saw the opportunity to provide a much broader platform to schools. So we investigated both organic build out of more tools to help professors, not just police for plagiarism, but actually enable student to student peer review and grade the student work electronically and get it back to them uh, in digital form back in a world of, of largely pen and paper grading. So it was tools to help create an online writing assessment platform. That was an organic build. We saw the opportunity to, particularly with the onset of machine learning and, and many mainstream applications, to take machine learning and apply it towards coaching up writing skills for students in higher education, but also in high school and middle school and, and uh, even, even elementary school. We thought the DNA around machine learning was something that would be take a long time to hire and build. We found a great company out of Carnegie Mellon that had brilliant researchers and, and machine learning experts that were off and running a couple years under their belt and investigating how to build machine learning models that would coach student writing skills up and engage students more in drafting and, and revising just to, to engage them in the process of, of writing and, and therefore learning. And we decided much better to spend a good chunk of money to acquire that company, even though it was pre-revenue and didn't even have a product commercially in market. But it would, it would help us get to a much better scale of impact as a company in four or five years and starting from scratch. So we acquired the company out of Carnegie Mellon. It was in the Pitts, Pittsburgh area. Uh, we invested in that office and they were able to move quickly in building a really strong, viable product. And then with our scale of customers in higher education and in high schools here in the U.S. and overseas as well, it's going to let us get to much higher numbers of students using the product faster than if we had decided to try to build it ourselves, where we'd probably be three years behind where we are today. What questions do you think founders who potentially have acquisition offers on the table should be asking in terms of fit with the potential acquirer, fit with the team? Are there any questions that to you really stand out when contemplating whether to sell or not? For a founder that wants to stay with the business, which fortunately we, that was 
the experience we, we've had with this acquisition I mentioned. It's really a chemistry fit with the founders, whoever their boss would be, whether the CTO or the uh, the CEO, to make sure there's the foundation for a really good business relationship, for high trust, for a complementary dynamic where the CEO could bring things to the founder in terms of development and thinking that they maybe don't have themselves at that point in their career. That's probably the, the biggest and first thing. And the second would be just a culture, organizational culture that will work with the culture of, of that founder startup. Generally, younger companies just have more entrepreneurial, looser cultures in general than more established companies. But even given that, you want to make sure the values, kind of people that are hired, how people are treated, they look similar between acquired company and acquiring company. There's obviously going to be differences, but you want to make sure there's going to be, in the end, a fairly healthy mesh there. I think for me, those are the two most important pieces of advice I'd give a founder considering selling his or her business to a larger entity. I'd, I'd love to finish today, though, with Chris's 60 seconds faster. So a quick fire round. I say a short okay. statement. You give me your immediate thoughts. Sound good? Sounds good. So when's a stretch VP a stretch too far? It's a great question. I almost feel like if you're questioning whether the person is is up for the job, that you already have your answer. There's a joke I heard once which said, I think it went something like, if you think your your gym shirt might smell, it does. I sort of believe that's true for leaders. If, you, if you're questioning whether you're the right person, you, you probably don't. Whether it's someone in role or someone you're considering, it should be an obvious thing. And if it's not, I think you have an issue. What do you know now that you wish you'd known, say, at the beginning of your time at Turnitin? It's a great question. The importance of flying at a high altitude or, or finding time every week to take a step or two back from your business and really see the big picture. I'm doing that now. I wish I'd done more of that early. And I think that's a big epiphany for me that happened over the years. Do you think people have the scale to transition from, from phase to phase? Or do you think they're very much segmented to Series A, Series B, Series C? Can they be multi-stage? They can be multi-stage. They got to be lifelong learners, need to be willing to take feedback and embrace it as well-intentioned feedback. And I think mentorship and coaching is critical to making those kinds of those phase jumps, but definitely possible. It's got to be someone who's willing to try new tricks, get rid of, of habits that served them well in the past, but won't in the new world. And it's it's very doable. Should customer success upsell? Yes, is a short answer. We That's a new function for us. And right now it's focused mainly on getting customers up and using the product and seeing value. But over time, when we have new products to bring to them, it's the ideal organization to bring new offerings, new modules into your install base with. What's been an inflection point in your career as a leader? Dave Kellogg was one, honestly. You know, He was head of marketing at Business Objects when I got there, and he showed me what great marketing's like and how to build a great relationship with other functions in a company to be effective for you and your team. That, that, was, that was a big one. I think you know, being CEO and finding I could actually help the company bend the curve through new ideas and new people that I bring into the company, that was an epiphany for me. And, and once I, I saw I could do that fairly well, I think it really transformed my my view of what I could do professionally. And then let's finish on your favorite SaaS reading material. Say it's a rainy day and you feel like some SaaS reading. What's your favorite authors, publications, newsletters? Well, I am an avid reader. A lot of my reading actually is out of SaaS. I have a kind of a closet um, hobby of, of astronomy and also energy, clean energy and, and uh, transportation. When I do read about SaaS, I, I guess, you know, the book that I think about most is, is Peter Thiel's Zero to One. It's, it's less about SaaS purely, although most of his case study companies are SaaS. But I, I love the theory behind what makes a great business model. And I think that's a very well-written book that explains how to discover a great business model and scale it from market to market. And that's probably my favorite go-to book I'd recommend to someone who wants to learn more about discovering the right idea for a great business and then scaling it up to a, to a really successful company. Chris, as I said, I heard so many great things from Dave. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Harry. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks very much.
So fantastic to have Chris on the show, and I'd like to give him a big thank you for all he's done for me and the show. And again, a big hand to Dave Kellogg for making the introduction to Chris, without which today's episode would not have been possible. And do not forget, we'd love to see you at Sasta Annual 2018. All you have to do is head over to drinkswithharry.com or type in drinkswithharry as your promotion code when you buy your tickets. And not only will you get free mojitos with me and Jason Lampkin, but you'll also get 10% off your ticket price. What a deal. Uh, It would be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you are a founder or operator, Your most important job is people operations, whether it be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to ensure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another awesome player in SaaS, WebConnects, the maker of powerful software for event management and fundraising. Having processed over a billion dollars for their customers and reaching over a million people every month, WebConnects really is a almost a white label, so thousands of organizations customize them to be like their own in-house solution. They're all about flexibility flexibility and customization at a reasonable cost. And you can learn more at webconnects.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like WebConnects did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments, and you can get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.